We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Dimitri Buyas. Hi, good evening. And from Taichung by Donovan Smith. Hey, great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing KMT Vice Chairman Andrew Shah visiting China to meet with the head of Beijing's Taiwan Affairs Office, calls for Jingmen to be declared a demilitarised zone, the DPP introducing rules on candidates accused of academic misconduct, the Central Epidemic Command Centre finally announcing that it's easing its indoor face mask mandate from February the 20th, and draft regulations being announced by the Environmental Protection Administration to ban more plastic tableware. But we'll begin with headlines concerning the shooting down of what US officials are insisting was a Chinese surveillance balloon leading to questions and concern here in Taiwan. The government has condemned Beijing for sending the balloon into US airspace and there have been calls for the Thai administration to explain its planned countermeasures for similar incursions into Taiwan's airspace. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs has slammed China, saying Beijing's behaviour breached international laws and was wholly unacceptable and Beijing should cease all activities that infringe on the sovereignty of other countries. Premier Chen Jianrej urged China to respect the sovereignty of airspace of other countries and KMT lawmaker Johnny Jung says both the National Security Bureau and the Ministry of National Defence need to review the possibility of whether surveillance balloons could be used against Taiwan and prepare to respond to such acts. While the DPP's Legislative Caucus Director, Zhang Yongpeng told reporters that any Chinese surveillance balloons that enter Taiwan's airspace should be shot down. The National Security Bureau says it's now detected a balloon hovering over Taipei in September September of 2021, and members of the public also reported seeing another in March of last year above Taipei's Sungshan Airport. And to add more to that, CNN published images of a Chinese spy balloon hovering over Taiwan in recent months. Also in America, the DPP's Washington DC mission chief Mike Fonte told ICRT this week that the China balloon incident has reinforced US commitment to Taiwan and its security. So Donovan, balloons. Yes. Um, it's quite interesting this has become such a, a, a big issue. Um, but what, what I find really quite surprising is that in the U.S., uh, because they have been detected over Japan, over Taiwan, India, um, and that the U.S., apparently they went back over their records and found out that they had been over over U.S. territory on at least three or four separate occasions before, including over Hawaii, Florida, Texas, and Guam. Um, but they they didn't realize it at the time, which is quite surprising. But as CNN, as you, you noted, CNN released uh, footage of it, one over over Taiwan, that that was quite obvious. So people were aware that this was happening. And during the early Biden administration, uh, they, they were also aware of, an, of a balloon over U.S. territory. But nobody did anything about it, which is really quite shocking, because when you have something infringing on your territorial airspace, and this is uh, quite, quite a big issue because, you know, recently in, in international news, you have... Airspace incursions from China into Taiwan's ADIZ, the Air Identification uh, Identification Zone, but not into Taiwan's airspace, because if you actually go into a country's airspace, that's considered basically an act of war. 
But China's been doing this quite egregiously, it looks like, now over quite a few countries, and Japan's and yet another one. And so it is actually and does make sense that this has become an issue in, and it attracts a lot of news attention. It, that makes a lot of sense. But, of course, it's bizarre that it's such an old tech. You know, a balloon is kind of a low-tech sort of sort of incursion. It's not like a fighter jet or a bomber, which, of course, you know, China's been... You know, infringing on Taiwan's ADIZ, but not airspace, with fighter jets and bombers on quite a regular basis. But, you know, using balloons is kind of a weird way of infringing on it. But they are capable of, you know, hovering over a certain uh, space so they can, you know, what they refer to as staring, which uh, satellites quite often can't do because they're in motion. So they give um, a surveillance advantage in that they can stop and just stare at a, a particular target for a long period of time. Now, uh, a lot of the big, uh, a lot of the conversation around the U.S. incursion of the latest one, which of course was shot down eventually, um, a lot of the discussion about it is, has been, why did China do this? And frankly, considering the the, the re, now the number of reports of how many of these things have been sent out over the last few years, probably the Occam's razor explanation for this is it was probably pre-scheduled. And because, of course, you know, Anthony Blinken was supposed to meet with Wang Yi, the um, CCP's top uh, foreign affairs uh, person, and of course that had to be called off, uh, you know, as this came to light. But you know that it was that it was it was most likely pre-scheduled. In other words, they probably decided months ago to send these these balloons out, and you know it most likely the you know the foreign affairs people, uh, you know, Wang Yi on the on the Chinese Communist Party side, probably did not even know that it was scheduled to be sent out over the United States. And even if they did, because they'd sent out at least four previously over U.S. territory, that they assumed that it wouldn't be an issue. But of course, at the end of the day, they sent it out, it became quite embarrassing for the Chinese Communist Party, and of course, for the PRC, the U.S. had to respond, and that's why Anthony, Anthony Blinken had to cancel the, uh, the meeting with Wang Yi. So this created a major issue. But of course, you know, this, this time it became obvious to the American public when, you know, normal people could see this thing over Montana. Now, there's been a lot of speculation, which it is possible, but I think it's not the most likely scenario that this was actually sent over by people within the Chinese government to either embarrass Xi Jinping personally uh, or to undermine U.S.-China relations. Those are possible. Uh, of those two, I think that trying to embarrass Xi Jinping Factionally is probably the more likely of those two, but frankly, I do think that at the end of the day, this is probably something that was 
pre-scheduled months ago. And because the U.S. has not actually come forward and said anything in the past, I think that the you know the the people responsible for this just simply went out, scheduled it, and said, ah, it's not going to cause any ruckus. We'll just we'll just do it and didn't expect anything to happen and probably Wang Yi and the foreign policy Xi Jinping and the foreign policy people actually probably didn't even know it was going to be uh, sent out there because of course the the Chinese government is massive and they don't always, the right hand doesn't always know what the left hand is doing And Dimitri, I mean there's concern and questions about this in Taipei of course We understand that the use of spy balloons by China is perceived as a breach of U.S. territorial uh, sovereignty and raises concerns about the Chinese government's surveillance capabilities. But still, and I agree with you that we should remember that in the 21st century Taiwan, spy balloons have a very low success rate in collecting important data, not to mention filming sensitive military sites because they can't predict the weather. Satellites, spyware, drones and the likes are far more efficient to collect sensitive data, maps and communications than balloon. So, well, the problem here is not the balloon in Taiwan. The problem is fighter jets. And Taiwan's military can't do much to reduce the increasing number of military flights around the country. And these should be our main concern. So today, the incident is used to uh, increase call for Taiwan to strengthen Taiwan's defense capabilities as well as for the international support in the face of China's growing assertiveness, which is very important. But at the same time, the incident should also underscore the need for continued communication in the face of increased tensions in the region. Um, I'm very surprised that actually the meeting uh, you mentioned earlier between the Secretary of State and uh, the, the the Chinese official actually was cancelled because there is a need for communication. And remember that the best way to avoid a conflict is to convince the opposing side that there is no need to cross the Taiwan Strait. So I know that you can also enter into an enter into an arm race uh, and improve the training of our military force and create military alliance, uh, alliances with other countries, but that mustn't that won't solve our main problem right now, which is mistrust. And in order to address that issue, communication is the only way. So, Dimitri, you don't. I mean, obviously, Dimitri, if so, if a, if a balloon as thus comes over Taiwan, you don't think that the Taiwan Air Force should blow it out of the sky? Well, the, if you have to, let's just blow it out. But after that, you need to reach to the other side and ask questions and what what happened and why. There is a need for communication. Now, if you cancel a pre-planned uh, meeting, and the, the, this meeting was in the pipeline for some time, so you, after you cancel that meeting, it was almost impossible to reschedule and ask more questions about the balloon. So, Donovan, I mean, do you think that if they enter Taiwan's airspace, they should be blown out of the sky? Yes. Expound on why? <laughs> well, because the, their intelligence gathering. Now, they haven't actually, obviously, they're still in the recovery phase of this particular one to find out what its capabilities are. But they are very well aware that what they do is they come in and because they're maneuverable and they're, they can be positioned to collect data, which apparently they, they in the past, for example, they flew over Songshan Airport. These are military assets, 
and intelligence assets being used very much in your face over you know over sovereign airspace now you remember the drones in the past uh, there was the drone incursions in Jinmen, which became kind of famous and Taiwan came out and said okay we're going to shoot them down and apparently they did uh, shoot down some drones after that this is the same sort of thing you know you can't a foreign country can't send military assets into Taiwan's airspace and expect it to not be shot down. Moving on now, and KMT Vice Chairman Andrew Shah is in China for a multi-city 10-day visit. He's being accompanied by KMT Mainland Affairs Department Head Lin Zhu-Jia and National Policy Foundation members Gao Suo-Bo and Zhao Chun-Shan. They're scheduled to travel to Shanghai, Nanjing, Wuhan, Chongqing and Chengdu, and the delegation is also slated to meet with the head of the Taiwan Affairs Office. Now, speaking to reporters at Taoyuan Airport prior to boarding his flight to Beijing, Shah described the trip as being apolitical in nature and said that it's aimed at looking after the welfare of Taiwanese living and working in China. Now, according to Shah, he hopes the delegation can also help resolve the plight of Taiwanese small and medium-sized enterprises, particularly in the agricultural and fisheries sectors, which have been hit by a series of import suspensions since 2021. And the KMT vice chairman went on to stress that although he's fully aware he's not authorised to engage in any form of political negotiations or consultations while in China, he still believes his trip will help improve understanding and dialogue across the... Taiwan Strait. Now, earlier this week, the Mainland Affairs Council reiterated that any politicians choosing to visit China must reflect on the will of the Taiwanese people and maintain democracy and peace. So, of course, Dimitri, this goes back to your your point you made before about you need dialogue. But, of course, Shah's trip has met with some disgust in some quarters. Well, it's not uncommon for representatives of the opposition party, the main opposition party, to engage in cross-trade discussions with the Chinese government as part of efforts to maintain stability in the region and to address the concerns on both sides. Well, we also should remember that there will be a presidential election within one year now. So it's also not surprising that the main opposition party thinks differently on on these issues than the ruling party. So, well, we can speculate that that such a visit would like to maybe it should be an attempt to improve relations and communications between the two sides. So there is a need for communication as tensions continue to soar. The ruling party considers that discussing with China under the 1992 consensus thing is compromising Taiwan's sovereignty. So, But as mentioned earlier, there is a need for communication and China is unlikely to change, but in China is unlikely to change its approach to Taiwan's political party, including KMT, until after the elections. Yeah, I, I mean, what's kind of kind of ironic is the timing of this is uh, the last time Andrew Shaw was sent to China was right after uh, the Pelosi visit, uh, and China was conducting live fire exercises around Taiwan. So somehow the KMT manages to send Andrew Xia to China whenever there's a major international I- incident showing uh, the, the People's Republics uh, while they're showing ag- you know aggression on the world stage. Uh, so there's a little bit of an irony on on that, but I do think in both cases it was pre-scheduled and wasn't intentional, just very, very poor timing. What's a little bit concerning about when the KMT sends these trips, I, I agree with Dimitri that you know dialogue is always a good thing, 
uh, when there's something, but only when there's something to be accomplished by it. And in this case, when it comes to the KMT as a political party sending its representatives to China, the concerning part about this is that they're not the elected government of Taiwan. They're not representing Taiwan. They're only representing their own political party's interests. And when they try to portray it as, you know, they're trying to reach out on behalf of Taiwan, that's quite concerning because when, and what they're trying to do is drive a partisan wedge between uh, the DPP and the KMT. But when when you look at uh, President Tsai Ing-wen and those officials in government, they are the elected government. They're not just representatives of the DPP. They're actually people who have been elected by the public to represent them nationally and the interests of people uh, you know, as the government of Taiwan. And so they are the people who really should be in charge of uh, cross-strait relations, whereas Andrew Xia, they are a party, is representing a party out of power, not uh, with no endorsement and uh, from the public to represent Taiwan in China. So they're acting entirely on their own, possibly not in the interests of Taiwan people, but we don't know. Uh, I mean, I mean, they talk about very. They said very specifically that it's about the the Taishang, the Taiwanese businessman in China, and all of that. And that may be all well and good. They claim it's not a political trip, but if they're meeting Song uh, Tao from the Taiwan Affairs Office, well, then yes, it is political. And so what they're doing is they're infringing on the prerogatives of and what is properly the role of Taiwan's foreign affairs, uh, foreign affairs, the government's foreign affairs prerogatives or the Mainland Affairs Council uh, or Straits Exchange Foundation. But, you know, so they're kind of meddling in what should be handled by the properly elected government of of the country. And I, I really don't think that it's in their... I don't think that they are acting necessarily on behalf of the Taiwanese public. There, there is another contradiction: is that China remains our main export market. So, our exports keep growing, and exports keep growing to mainland China. But when exports grow, you may face a lots of different issues. But because of the ruling party's um, position, which is right now wait and see, nobody can answer questions or solve the issues that maybe Taiwanese businessmen will face when they are in China. So, as mentioned, as I just mentioned, the election. This is a very competitive market for an opposition party. They need to show that, and. That's how they've been successful in in over the past twenty thirty years. They've been very um, helpful and and they will be they were very successful in solving cross strait issues, addressing those issues instead of 
um, using different kind of political stance to as an excuse for not doing something. So as long as you have those issues, you need some people to try to fix them. And if the KMT believes that uh, they will be rewarded in the next election, if they help in solving these issues, well, maybe they, they, they have a point because uh, communication can help. Uh, when and about the uh, what you just mentioned, whether opposition members of the opposition, when they visit, whenever they visit Taiwan, uh, we always welcome them. So yes, there is a contradiction here, and maybe for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, maybe they should be maybe think about thinking about communicating less about the cross-trade problems, but maybe explain how they're going to solve these issues. I think that would be helpful. And a bipartisan collective of Jingmen County councillors this week launched an initiative to turn the island into a demilitarised zone. The groups include a cross-party alliance and one made up of independent councillors. They're calling for the removal of military personnel and installations to the outlying island as part of a wider effort to promote cross-strait peace and for closer ties with Xiamen in China. Now, independent councillor Chen Yanghu, who leads the cross-party alliance, says when Jingmen is basically named a DMZ. Its current garrison of some 2,000 troops could be replaced by a coastal patrol or police force. Chen and the Alliance are also pushing for the construction of a bridge linking Jingmen and Xiamen in China and the development of a Jingmen-Xiamen special economic zone as part of efforts to boost the outlying island's development. But... Obviously, some people have come out and said, hang on a minute, hold on their hoss. But former DPP chairman Sherming De also chimed in on the issue, saying that he's spent decades promoting the idea of turning Jingmen and Matsu into buffer zones. And he's now pleased with the county councillor's initiative and he's willing to meet with representatives from Jingmen to elaborate on his version of the idea, Donovan. I actually noted, and I think this is quite an important uh, detail is that the the counselors when they when they came forward unlike Sherminda when they came forward with their idea they did talk about replacing them with police or a coast uh, coast guard because there are potential issues where if you take out the troops if you don't have a, a similar or equivalent kind of force on Jimin and Mazu, you could be in situations where you can be, you know, overrun by armed uh, fishermen militia, which exist in China. Um, you know, they could go rogue and just invade on their own. Um, so you need something there um, with with the kind of weaponry and to repel a, a kind of rogue attack. Now, obviously, a, de- a determined military attack from the from the People's Republic would obviously be successful. It's right there off the coast of uh, off of Fujian, both in Jinmen and in Mazu. Now, but the thing is, is that, and I think what's kind of forgotten in a lot of this discussion is that this is an, an entirely symbolic discussion. Because the reality is, is that Taiwan has already essentially done this. They used to station tens of thousands of troops on Jinmen and Mazu, but now there's about 3,000 troops left on Jinmen and about 2,000 left in Mazu, whereas it used to be you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 troops back in the day. So they've demilitarized it to a, 
a, a large degree already. But, the, you know, what they're talking about is making it completely demilitarized, which may or may not be practical unless you can come up with, which the counselors did uh, seem to touch on, uh, an alternative. But if you do this, it, it sends a, a message of peace to China, which is great. Um, the only problem is, is that when you're dealing with the Chinese Communist Party, and this again with the the last, uh, you know, again with the last topic with this one, is that they're intransigent. They, they just simply don't budge. The Chinese Communist Party, you give them an inch, and they'll take a mile. They're negotiating with them is they don't negotiate in good faith. They don't honor their agreements. They basically renege on everything they say they're going to do repeatedly over and over and over again on every single topic. The only time they don't renege on their agreements is when it's in their own interest not to. So this would be a symbolic gesture and they're not even asking the Chinese side to provide something in return, which you'd think if you're going to give up something, a big bargaining chip like this to the Chinese side, you'd expect some kind of reciprocal action from the Chinese side in return. But, you know, they're not even bothering to do that. And But we also know that the Chinese side wouldn't negotiate in good faith or offer anything in good faith anyway. So this just seems like a purely symbolic, empty gesture, which will accomplish absolutely nothing in dealing with with China and will not increase the chances of peace, may in, increase the chances of an incident where you get local groups or armed fishermen or whatever uh, creating a major international incident on Jinmen because there's no military there all of a sudden. And, you know, all for what? What's, what's accomplished by it? And I don't really see anything that would be accomplished. If they try to negotiate for something substantive from China, I would get the logic, even though I don't think that the Chinese side would actually give something substantive in reality or keep to it unless it was in their own interest. So I just don't really see where this is going. What is going nowhere? I think that the goal is to clearly embarrass the ruling party because if you want to negotiate like kind of something like a DMZ, it's something between maybe the Taiwan government and the Chinese government, they could come up with on an agreement to have this kind of this DMZ area in Jinmen. But that should also include parts of the coastal area in China, which is, as you said, unlikely to happen. So you can maybe self-proclaim, say, announce that you will become a DMZ. But actually, there is no tension at all in that area, actually. So uh, we don't see the point in trying to reduce tension in an area that is pretty peaceful right now. So, yes, you can. Um, and you're right. When you, whenever you discuss or you, you negotiate with China, it's uh, you have to bargain. And uh, you explain that, like, as you said, you know, We, we talk about the, the 1992 consensus all the time. But from on the Taiwan side, the 1992 consensus includes like different interpretations. But from the China side, it's just the 1992 consensus. So 
um, yes, we've tried in the past also to have those uh, and to compromise, but it's always the Taiwan side that compromised the most, not the China side. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the DPP's Central Executive Committee has approved a series of rules on the academic integrity of party members registering for primaries ahead of the 2024 presidential and legislative elections. Now the new regulations require all would-be candidates to sign a declaration stating that they did not engage in academic misconduct in writing their thesis and accepting strict punishment if they're found to have lied. Now the move comes as the DPP is working to improve its nomination process fulfilled in candidates in January 20. 2024's elections. Under the new mechanism, party members will sign a declaration stating they did not engage in plagiarism, falsification or ghostwriting when writing their thesis. And party chairman Lai ching De says although the DPP is not the only political party with members facing questions of violating academic integrity, it will be the first to set an example by proposing a solution. However, the DPP has been forced to defend the rules as they include a clause that states that if a candidate fails the thesis standards used by their alma mater of after being checked for plagiarism, they will still be allowed to compete in the primary if they do not register their degree with the Central Election Commission if they win the primary. Needless to say, that clause has resulted in widespread criticism by members of the public and the KMT who are arguing that it simply provides a loophole for candidates who have plagiarised their thesis to begin with. Donovan. <laughs> yeah. Um, Lai ching of course, now that he's the... Um head of the party he's got he's got some serious internal difficulties to deal with now you know in the last election obviously uh, you know starting with the uh, obviously the whole plagiarism issue st- first really came up in the by-election between Jane Lee and uh, Chen Chi Mai after uh, Han Guoyu was kicked out of the Kaohsiung mayorship in a recall and that you know, in that by-election, it was Jane Lee whose thesis it turned out was plagiarized. Now, that was, as far as I know, the first time that this has ever come up as a major issue in an election. But that should have been a portent for political parties and for candidates, because nowadays, obviously, there's technical tools that makes it a lot easier for you to use the internet to find out whether or not a uh, a thesis was indeed plagiarized, and that this became a tool in the last election cycle is really kind of unsurprising when you think about it. Um, so it was that Gaoshang by-election should have served as a warning. Now, this hit all three parties uh, during the last election cycle, but there's a big difference between the way the public perceives the DPP and the KMT. The DPP has consistently in the past run as the reformist party. It's the clean party. It's the one that runs against black gold politics. So it runs as the idealistic and clean party, whereas the public kind of assumes when it comes to the KMT and their voting base views the KMT as the party that is better at getting things done, but they often get their hands a little dirty while doing it. That's the public perception of the two parties. So if there's a a, a scandal within the KMT, like, for example, 
uh, you know, the Elan County Commissioner who's under investigation for a massive, potentially massive corruption scandal, won re-election. But, you know, Lin Jin, who's who was the ex-Shinju mayor, was running for uh, Taiyuan County Commissioner and was found out to have plagiarized his theses, both, both of them. Um, you know, people hold the KMT and the DPP to different standards. Now, Lai Jingde became very famous for his stand against corruption in the Tainan City Council back when he was the Tainan mayor. And that he's not taking, you know, as you pointed out, there's basically a a hole there you could drive a bus through, and that he's not taking a very strong stand on this is a little bit disappointing because these online tools that, you know, expose to the politicians who are running in in the last election cycle that expose their theses as being plagiarized, the party should have access to the same tools that journalists do. Um... So they should be able to vet using their own teams better than, at least as good at, if not better than journalists. But, you know, but but he's got a major problem. And that is, and I call it the Zengwen Tan problem. You know, the former Taoyuan city mayor who's now in the cabinet, um, he was found to have uh, plagiarized uh, his thesis, but he is one of the most powerful figures in the DPP. And Lai Qingda needs him on his side, uh, presumably, but partially because he's also New Tide faction. Both of them are New Tide faction. Zhong Wenshan and uh, Lai Qingda are the, uh, probably right now the two most powerful people within the New Tide faction in the DPP. Each of them have their own sub-factions of New Tide. So, you know, he can't throw out someone, Tsai, especially now that, uh, you know, President Tsai Ing-wen has included him in the cabinet. You know, she's basically endorsed him in spite of him having been found, uh, having, you know, plagiarized his thesis. So he, you know, so now Lai Qingde, who has a reputation of fighting corruption and taking a firm stand, now, you know, he's stuck between keeping that reputation and continuing to do what's right on that kind of issue, or facing down President Tsai Ing-wen and Zheng Wen-chan, who has his own sub-faction in New Tide, and put this all together, and apparently it looks like uh, Lai Chinda's backing down. Backing down with a hole the size that a bus could drive through, Dimitri. Yeah. Well, strangely enough, uh, well, of, number one, they're pretty late in uh, announcing these new rules and regulations, and the, there is still a lot of concerns and conspiracies and, and well, about President Tsai Ing-wen's own thesis that nobody actually can is is allowed to read but never mind i think what's it's been wrong released online you can actually read it yeah. i have a copy of it on, on my hard drive the problem is that as the for the ruling party they should also uh and because of what happened over the past few months it's they should make sure that we reforming the educational system that those things don't happen again 
because it's not just politicians that should be held to higher standards. It's all students graduating from local universities. Because if a young grad uh, copied and pastes his thesis and then apply to maybe for a job at TSMC, it's not going to help TSMC to hire somebody who can just copy and paste. So yes, we should hold them accountable, but we should and we hope that in the future, maybe by reforming the educational system, these things don't happen again. We have to ask uh, graduates, and especially now that we have new AI tools that allow you to maybe write faster and copy maybe other people's content, we have to be extremely careful. But, do you, mean, do you, think, do you think maybe the DPP should just say, no, if you plagiarize, you're out? Well, that's what they should. That's that's what which they should say. And we do understand it's it's a very complicated issue because that would mean a lot of people would be out. But they should, and especially with the younger generation, insist and make very clearly that if you plagiarize your thesis, you should leave the party. And moving on to coronavirus news now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Thursday of this week finally announced that it'll be easing its indoor face mask mandate on February the 20th as part of the latest lifting of coronavirus regulations. Of course, that announcement had been expected to be made last week but was delayed. The move now means people will no longer be required to wear face masks in most indoor settings. However, face masks will remain mandatory in medical facilities and on all forms of public transport. Now, according to the Epidemic Command Centre, if the coronavirus situation remains stable the indoor face mask will be lifted for schools at all levels as well as kindergartens child care centers and cram schools on march the 6th health officials though are continuing to recommend that people with breathing problems the elderly or the immunocompromised and those in crowded venues where it's impossible to maintain social distancing continue to wear face masks so donovan of course they, they lifted the outdoor face mask mandate some weeks ago, some months ago, but people still wear face masks outside. I mean, are you, are you cheering on the remove your face mask indoor policy? Well, for the most part, but that does mean I'm going to have to shave more often. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, in the, at some point we do kind of have to get back to normal life, Um and I, I do think this is a bit overdue, although I do understand that, uh, you know, it, it, there's been the, the caseload, the reported caseload has remained kind of stubbornly high for quite a while now on the twenty to 30,000 uh, per day level, which is a bit, I think, higher than they'd hoped. Um, and there is obviously makes some sense to keep the, the, the masks on in you know, uh, obviously, um, old folks' homes and and hospitals, which you know, there, there, there's a lot of logic in that. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that at some point we kind of need to move back toward uh, normal life, um, being able to see people's faces again. You know, I mean, obviously, all of us here are old enough, or you know, I'm me barely, but you guys definitely. Um, <laughs> To, to have you know reached a point where in life where you, you know you you kind of understand emotional reactions and responses from people's facial expressions and you've learned that you know because that's a big part of growing up and kids who are growing up right now during a period of everyone having their faces covered is uh, not really very healthy 
Um, and I do think we've reached a point where the disease has moved on to being something that we can largely live with. Um, so, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it being lifted indoors. Um, I'm not sure if the, I, I kind of understand the public transport thing. If you're somebody who's in Taipei and riding, say, a crowded MRT, the Taichung MRT doesn't get that kind of traffic, and the buses are usually not that crowded. So, you know, that seems kind of arbitrary, but I can I can see where it comes from. But yeah, I, overall, looking forward to it. Well, I can tell you that it would be it will be a very awkward feeling. I had a chance to to travel to Singapore last year. And I arrived there and nobody was wearing a mask. And I felt like suddenly uh, I felt it was like really awkward. So I kept my mask on the first day. And then I showed up to some meetings and then people asked me, are you sick? How do you feel? Is there something wrong? Why are you wearing a mask? And then I was just in the middle of a hundred of people. It was a big meeting. And then, well, I decided to take off my mask and I felt naked. So uh, after three years in a pandemic, uh, and even though we uh, authorities already li uh, lifted the um, the mask mandate for outdoors, uh, you can still see, see um, in Taipei most people actually wear a mask, uh, still wear a mask. So yes, uh, it's it's uh, yes, it's time to move on. Maybe it will be maybe take time to. For us and most people to go to for life to go back to normal because there is still a concern, uh, many many cases and then a lot of uh, people. I think every month you have like still hundreds of people dying because of COVID. And Do Dimitri, I mean, do you think obviously you work in an office with lots and lots of people? Do you think your office will say no, you don't have to wear a mask all of a sudden? And if they do, do you think most people will still continue to wear masks? Um, well, the the companies will tell you that you can take off your mask if you want. So most people will just will keep it. But my company already announced that they won't uh, provide COVID test anymore. Uh, so there is no need to, uh, if you um, test positive to COVID, now you barely have to do five days at home before you can come back to the office. So life will get back to normal, which is a very, it's a good thing. Uh, but there is still a lot of concern. And before we go this week, the Environmental Protection Administration unveiled new draft regulations to ban some more plastic tableware. The ban covers the use of tableware made of polylactide at eight types of public venues. Those venues include public agencies, private schools, department stores and shopping malls, hypermarkets, supermarkets, convenience stores, fast food outlets and restaurants. Now the, the move rather revises an existing regulation that currently bans those eight same venues from providing plastic tableware except for polylactide-made items. Now, of course, polylactide-made items were not banned years and years ago when tableware made of plastic first was because it was believed they were actually biodegradable. But now, apparently, the EPA said, well, they're actually, they're not as biodegradable as had originally been thought, Donovan. Yeah, I, I, what I saw was that they, it's bio, they're biodegradable under certain circumstances. Um... That and that Taiwan doesn't have facilities to create the circum to create the right uh, environment for them to biodegrade. And so essentially, they're not biodegradable in the sense that I think you and I, if you said it was biodegradable, 
you know, you and I would assume, you know, um, you know, like a piece of wood or something like that. So apparently they need a specific conditions to become biodegradable, and Taiwan just simply isn't set up for it. Um, you know, if there was recycling companies that actually had that, those environments to create them to be biodegradable, then that would be great, but apparently Taiwan doesn't have those yet. So in practice, if they're going to ban them the way that they're going to ban them across the board, making an exception for them, I guess, doesn't make sense. The more basic debate then becomes, should these things be banned in the first place, um, considering that it's a relatively small part of the problem? Obviously, there's good arguments to be made, I think, on both sides on that one. And, of course, Dimitri, the other issue is um, they, they banned plastic tableware a long time ago in Taiwan, but you could have fooled me that it was banned, mate. Well, you can still find it. Uh, almost everywhere, like plastic <laughs> plastic bags. Uh, plastic bags were banned a long time ago, but most shops still provide you plastic bags. So you, some of them you have to buy, spend one anti dollar to buy a plastic bag. But if you go to the night market, nobody's going to ask you one anti dollar uh, for a plastic bag. Uh, well, yes, we've been. Taiwan has been successful in in. Uh, we have a very uh, high recycling rate for plastic. But we should also keep in mind that Taiwan is a major producer of plastic. So why don't we maybe start curbing our exports of plastic? Because we might feel that, well, uh, Taiwan should maybe ban those tableware, plastic tableware. But why should we still export them to other countries? And maybe in this regard, Taiwan also should maybe think carefully about their its next move curbing plastic and uh, producing less plastic may be a good thing also for taiwan and that's where we'll leave it here this week on taiwan this week and i've been joined in the studio today by dimitri buyas well it's great to be here and from taijong by donovan smith and great to be back and thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of taiwan this week here on icrt with me gavin phipps and don't forget to check out taiwan this week podcast on your favorite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.